Spotlightonpodcast.com slash store is the place to go to get a Spotlight On collectible for the music and arts lover in your life, or maybe even yourself. Go to spotlightonpodcast.com slash store today. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Roberto De Gioia of the German jazz supergroup WebWeb and his group's collaborator, the songwriter and producer Max Herda. WebWeb's fifth album is also their second with Max, and it's appropriately titled WebMax 2, out now on Compost Records. This is an exciting, genre-bending album that includes appearances from Los Angeles-born percussionist and producer Carlos Gabriel Nino, hot on the heels of his own work on the new Andre 3000 album. This record is the complete package, from the striking cover art to every well-placed organic and synthetic musical touch. Roberto, who is a repeat guest of Spotlight On, and Max are both fun, engaging, and deeply committed artists. I think you'll enjoy the talk. So I spent the weekend immersed in the new album and it's so good. It's so good. It's right in the target of what I like to listen to, but also new and fresh enough that it doesn't feel like something I've heard before. And it's really just, I'm, I'm so eager to spend more time with it. I'm actually looking forward to buying it on vinyl because I feel like it's going to sound terrific. Thanks a lot. We appreciate yeah, it's, uh, it's so, so good to hear so. Do you listen to it? Do you listen to your own work? While we're doing it, we listen to it a lot. It went to a lot of phases. Like we had some of the songs had 24 mixes or so to it. Like it was like a, this kind of album that really version rather than mixes. Versions, versions while we were doing it. So it was really a lot of trial and error this time. It was other than the album before. It was It's, it's more like a producer's album. We really tried out things and tried different to explore different paths and angles for, for each song. So they really grew. Not all of them. Some of them, like like Provincial Journey, for instance, was pretty much what it is now from a ver- very early stage. But some other songs really like they they went through through phases and they are also different like soundscapes. Yeah, we tried out a lot, a lot of things. So I'll go back and ask: Do you ever? put on your own music and for the enjoyment of listening to it or can you not do that i've listened today today because um, i had to decide what we're gonna play live believe it or not i have to learn the songs from scratch because when you do it when you record it and when you find it it's instantly there or not and then it disappears it's like a child mm. you feed. It's, it has nothing to do with oneself any longer. So it's really like a second person right in front of you and you look at it. Today, actually, I listened to it and I had to listen to. And I liked it. 
but it's, it's, it's strange. I know it like your kid, like your son, you, you know it, you know, you know him and, but, but still there are surprises, you know, oh, wow, mm. this was happening. Oh, I, I can't remember this color or, you know, this happens. Yeah, yeah. It's like, really like a child, at least to me, to myself. Mm. I don't know, Max. Sometimes, yeah. And in like when albums are really new, I like to listen back and then like they disappear for a while. And then sometimes a couple of years later, or, or just like Roberto said, and you're rehearsing for a show. So you listen back to it. And it's really interesting for me, like with these, like the Web Web and Webmax albums, I'm not a performer like that on these albums. I do albums where I'm where I'm writing lyrics for and then I'm I perform so I really have to deal with myself and my persona as an artist on these albums and it's way different than to listening to Webmax where I'm producing and I'm really I'm playing little bits and pieces but I'm not like like a major like performer on the album which is easier for me to listen to it as just as music and with a certain distance that that that's way more enjoyable for me than to ask myself, who, who am I? What did I tell? What I, did I talk about? How did I sound? And yeah. So yeah, at this phase, uh, at least I really love listening back to the album. I think, yeah, it, it's, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. When you said earlier, Max, and I, it's something I also read in, I think the press release about the record that it's a producer's album or more of a producer's album. I wasn't entirely sure how to interpret that. But when I think about a producer in the context of I guess any music, but specifically instrumental music and jazz, there's different poles of types of producer. You know, I think of like a Teo Macero, who's like a wizard and cutting up tape and copying and pasting. And I would imagine he'd be very comfortable in the modern age if he were around with computers mm -hmm. and digital mm -hmm. capabilities. And then maybe someone like a Rudy Van Gelder, who's almost more of an engineer and is just searching for the sound. So I wonder, and, I, and I'm sure there's a spectrum in between. What does that mean for you that it's a producer's album? Different things. All of what you said probably as well, like sound, finding the right sounds and playing around with it. What I mean in comparison to the last album where we went to the studio with the band and we played takes on music that Roberto and I had written before. So it was really about that, sitting there and discussing what to play on the songs and what instruments should play on it. And with this, it was more like, as we were evolving it in the studio, a lot of the times the musicians not being around, but Roberto, play, Roberto playing a lot of the stuff, bringing different people in at different times and, and stages. That's what I mean on the one hand. And then also producers album in the quest of finding like a narrative to it. Mm. Like I think with the last one, we really had a certain idea of what like the album as a whole should sound like. And now we had, we had different paths to explore and then we needed kind of a, a narrative that would hold it together. And it was more like thinking of, okay, what do we want for the album? Which paths do we want to explore? But also, where do, do we not go this time? What we need in order to still being at an album and holding it together and giving it a certain overall idea or, or meaning. Roberto, was the narrative for this record Munich? We initially planned three albums, which all came together in this one album. We thought we could make three albums with different focuses, like a drum album, crowd 
Jazz album like Embryo, Amundul, the 60s, 70s German Munich bands, which I am familiar because I'm from Munich and I know some people. I met them. I met Mel Waldron, the John Coltrane piano player in Munich in 86. You know, I said hello to him once, which was the greatest honor. And he was playing around with the Embryo guys then. And the other was the songwriting, a songwriting album. And by working on the albums, we made a distillation of the best moments and put it together. It tells the story to, to answer your question with a na narrative of Munich. It's out of our handwriting, our feather, we wrote the music. And that's what keeps the album together. Because there's so many different styles actually on this album, which is mm -hmm. a very contemporary and modern way of listening to music. On the other hand, it's a total concept album for ourselves because the songs move from classic songwriting, it's like the first song, then to a free jazz type of, to an, to an African 1974 type of beatbox with two guitars and an organ. So the styles are totally different, but within the development made this possible so that we don't feel we put together meaningless tunes, but every song has its own meaning and keeps the story which we are in line. It tells the story in a, in a, in a certain way of Reihenfolge, in a, in a certain way of sequence. Sequence. That, that's very helpful to hear you articulate it that way, because as a listener, I got that, but I, I don't think I would have been able to say it the way you did. And something that strikes me is the notion of lineage, not only the physical lineage of being from a place, mm. but the way that's expressed through the different styles on this record. You were saying something that what it brought up for me was that the risk of something like that is it could be chaotic and, and not fit together and be disjointed. Mm -hmm. And somehow, maybe we'll credit some Max here or something from wearing a producer's hat or both of you, to be able to navigate that, to make it a coherent whole that touches on all those things. That to me, outside of the playing itself, is one of the, the triumphs of this record is the ground it's able to cover and what it's able to convey through those styles. And that, you know, Let's get the name out of the way. You brought up Coltrane. You said that you said the words Coltrane <laughs> when you mentioned Mal Waldron. <laughs> it's just as a funny aside, I, I know on the last record you had Charles Tolliver on it. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if I told you this the last time we spoke, Roberto, but years ago I saw Charles Tolliver with McCoy Tyner. Wow. They did two nights of the music of Africa Brass oh. with, a, with a big band. And it was just... Yeah, yeah oh, they, wow. they did it in New York for two or three nights at the Blue Note. Incredible. But one of the tracks on the record, uh, I think it's Sixth Dimension, really harkened back to that early 60s Dolphy, Coltrane, when they were just taking in some of the Eastern sound, getting very modal. I don't know. Yeah. But the beginnings of the spiritual jazz, that that to me was the birth of a oh, lot okay. of this. The song Sixth Dimension. I, I, I This was a funny moment actually all the horns may i show you the horns are this mellotron the original no kidding these are all the horns so 
this was an improvisation with saxophone sounds, clarinet sounds. I found this weird saxophone sound, which I didn't remember. I have the old Mellotron has grames, sound grames with, yeah. with real tapes in it. You have to change the tapes. And I found this saxophone, which is in the middle of the song. So blah, 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 blah. And I said, this could be any cool tenor player, Pharaoh Sanders type of, and I immediately recorded this. And then after this, I played, <laughs> I played this, uh, drum set, which it was, it's a total, it sounds like a band, but it isn't. And that's what Max put, he puts together, you know, the different elements. And that's his verdienst, how do you say, of putting these elements together in one to one. He's an alchemist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He definitely is. Yeah. If, yeah. But the, no, no, the gold, the gold is there already. It's the gold is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm absorbing what you just told me because after spending so much time with the record, I didn't guess that. I didn't know that was the Mellotron and it's all so... the horn in there on this, on, in this song, all the horns are really this Mellotron. Also a very modern and very antique and, and early seventies. The Mellotron is the crowd rock instrument is a Munich mm -hmm. instrument, which I bought from a guy in Munich and somehow the history also in, is involved in this record, in, in these songs. And also, although this is from 1974, the Mellotron, the original, it's a very modern approach, not to fake, but to simulate yeah. with modern techniques, computer multi-track recording to simulate an ancient or a 60s, 70s recording. And this all happens by a vision or this originates in a vision of how it could have been then and it comes together how I interpret with my tools the music of then together with Max. And that's kind of the basic principle. Also on perennial journey, it sounds like a bigger band, and but it's all recorded in, in this tiny little 14 square meter room. This took 50 versions and the composition is one part. The beginning of the record is this bass and drums part, the bass line. Do, 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 do. And this originally came in the middle of the song. We had a different beginning. When Max came and said, well, that's not the beginning, that's a middle part. This is the beginning. And so he arranges things in a different way than I hear it. That's where I can respond to him and his ideas and follow this in a certain way and that's why we work together on actually many projects now. It's really great because the other one knows things which the other one doesn't know. <laughs> so it's really four hands in four years, one person or so. And I'm very thankful to you, Max, that you are around and bear my ideas, which are terrible some. Times most of the times <laughs> that's not true. But thank you, yeah. thank you for saying so. But that's not true at all.
Something that Roberto said that I also grab onto, and I wanted to say it to you through my filter, which is something that I always loved about not only the spiritual jazz era of the late 60s, early 70s, but what I would call post-spiritual jazz, but where, where some of those artists went next in their innovations really struck me as being more about arranging and instrumentation. I've had this conversation with a few artists, how a lot of the jazz artists went electric and embraced sort of the, the path that Miles trailblazed. Yeah. But other artists, I think specifically of like a McCoy Tyner, he never really went electric, but was mm -hmm. just as innovative because he started to incorporate the African instruments and his use of arrangement is just, it's stunning. That's something that really struck me on this record is that in the midst of all this improvisation, there's incredible arrangement work. And I wonder, what did your background in hip hop bring to the table or how did it inform, how does it inform your work as a producer and an arranger in these other musical contexts, if at all, maybe you could tell me I'm crazy. <laughs> no, it does. It does. It does totally. I think it has a huge impact because, I mean, coming from digging and sampling, it's like you always look for these parts that really have this repetitive moment, like that give you something that's of a mantra of a song. That's what your whole search is about to find. And of course, if you play with bands and you work with bands, that's also something that you're I'm always into to have like a foundation that is, you know, rhythm and baseline on which everything else can like unfold. And I think that's something that, that we really explored with this record, also with the last one, like to have something that is really based on a foundation that is sort of holds it together in a way. And th that's what, what I like uh, also about the improvisation. If, if you have something that is re underneath that is really mantric and, and stable and repetitive, it's spiritual in its own way because doing it over and over again and finding groove together within a room and a group of people and sort of evolving through repetition with a lot of like the spiritual jazz stuff I, I love. That's the base. If you listen, a lot of the Yusuf Latif stuff, for instance, is very repetitive in a sense that it, it lays a foundation on which you can, as a musician and as a spirit, you can like unfold and just start exploring. And I think that's something that we really thought of. Like, if you bring it back to hip-hop, that's what we call, you know, what's the beat, what's the bass line? But I think also, like, hip-hop producers really understood that in a way, that this is something that that is appealing. And also, we came from playing live a lot with the last record. We A lot of the songs on the last record, we ended up playing a bit faster than they were in the record because we mm. thought and we saw that people were responding to it physically. You really had the feeling that people are not just, you know, in jazz audiences in, in Germany, they're often very like stiff and sophisticated and intellectual. And you could feel, all right, this is like I know from hip hop context, this is something, okay, that really gets in, in the bodies, the, the groove, the bloodline of listeners. And, and I think that was something that we were really aware with the record that we wanted that, that was the foundation of a lot of the songs. I believe that's the thing that was so attractive going all the way back to the early mid seventies to a lot of artists that were influenced by what was happening in Germany. It seems to have been something that the German artists and the musicians really uncovered and perfected, which was this notion of using technology, but still creating music with soul. 
I can recall years ago having an argument with a friend of mine who hates Kraftwerk. He thinks mm. it's the most sterile music ever. And I listen to Kraftwerk and I feel like it's soul music. Several years ago, through a different, completely different situation, I had an opportunity to meet, to meet Ralph. I was working for Warner Music at the time. And when I was introduced to him, he said, Atlantic Records, Aretha Franklin. <laughs> wow. And that to me completely validated my, my, my theory that, um, yeah. that it was about soul. It was, oh, it was Especially always about the, soul. Especially the, you know, these very early beginnings with the flute, the sessions can be seen on YouTube and they are really very good musicians too. And then they always found the best drum sound and the best vocoder sound. And that's why it sets standards so early, so high that the whole world in electronic music still sees them as the gods of electronic pioneers because the highest standards of, yeah, without words. <laughs> yeah. Something else they did that's very interesting is when they went back in the, I guess in the eighties and digitized their catalog, I think to a large extent, they rebuilt a lot of the, I guess what we would call stems. They really rebuilt a lot of the, the tracks. And so when we hear the music now and, and when younger people are coming to it, they sonically, I don't want to say they enhanced it, but they modernized it. And basically like the preservation or restoration work they did with the catalog then, in, in, it, it made them ideally suited for the digital age. It's mm. really interesting what they, yeah, interesting. How, how intentional yeah. they were about their catalog as a body of work. But another interesting intersection that I wanted to ask you about, Max, and I promise I won't leave you out, Roberto. Um, <laughs> is, uh, another intersection of hip hop and spiritual jazz or jazz in general to me is sort of the idea of consciousness and your work being sort of associated with conscious lyrics and I guess message music, if you don't mind me saying it that way. Mm -hmm. While we were talking about lineage, there's also this lineage of, I guess, of consciousness, of spirituality, of awareness that runs through both of these musics as well. Is that a valid connection or interpretation? And, and is that something that, that you're meaningfully aware of and participating in? I think so, yes. I think the concept of, or the idea, or, or the knowing about that we all stand on the shoulders of people that came before, that's sort of a sentiment I know I was taught in hip-hop in a way, but that obviously goes back to all the music that came before. And I think the idea of, of seeing ourselves as being a part of a tradition that is so profound, way older, and that, that, that also came to be in a certain context, like a social political context, like in a, in a spiritual context and knowing about it and referring to it. Yeah, I think that's very important to our music. Uh, on a perennial journey, my friend Seiku wrote this the spoken word part that really brings together the idea that we really, there's a lot of gratitude towards the music that, that we grew up with and like the protagonists who were playing and crafting this music. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. Did you know that Spotlight On is completely self-funded by the team that produces it? We're looking for ways to keep the podcast self-sufficient without sacrificing the listener experience or the integrity of the show. The best way we could think of was to ask for the support of our listeners. 
please consider making a donation to help cover our annual operating expenses. Go to SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click the word Donate. If you can, please do. And if you cannot, please continue to enjoy the show. We're happy to have you as a listener. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. At the risk of deconstructing how you create, and I don't necessarily mean to do that, but do you have to create an environment for the music to come? Is there ritual or practice around that? Or are you more like a workman and you just go to work and start picking up the tools? Second, second. The ritual is very early before your mind is awake. All the work has to be done. And I feel this when I bring my daughter to school, 7.30, and I come back at exactly 7.35. I'm sitting in this room and I'm not really there. All I have to do is not wait for inspiration. It's just do it. <laughs> and it works many times, but many times it doesn't work. And it's okay. You know, it's like usual work, which I like. It sounds very arrogant, but it's to me nothing special because I'm doing it so long and I have fun. Sometimes I don't have fun. Actually, many times you don't have fun when it's already there. And you know, there's so much work. Perennial Journey was there. There was a year, almost, or maybe 10, 10 months at least. There were two different drum takes from two different own session, which two different days. And there were two months in between the first part. And then it switches to another symbol, but it's the same symbol recorded with a different mic on two months later. Although the song is there and it, it's fun, you are not satisfied and you are not happy with the result because it doesn't sound like it should sound. That's the hard part, but which is not fun, but it's okay. Something that that's bringing up for me is, because earlier Roberto made the joke to you, Max, that he has a lot of ideas and they're not all good. I can take that as just being self-effacing, but I could also understand that if you force yourself to work every day, you're going to generate a lot that you just throw away and you say, I'm, I'm just working to get to the good yeah. one. So I understand that, but there's got to be some that are right on the edge where you say, this has potential if I just keep yeah. working at it and sculpting it away and removing it's or adding. It's a very good example of one track, this uh, number, Max, we has this, I, I don't even know the titles. We have so many titles too. Like, as, as I told you, we have a lot of versions and they get different titles. And then at the end, they ask us, okay, what's the record going to be like? And we come up with names that we can recall <laughs> in interviews. The tune with the drum beat, the organ, and the two guitars. It's like number eight or nine on the record. Well, let me let me figure out. It's a very good example of, and it describes perfectly, whilst you find it, Max, I will tell the story. I think we gave it a, a French name, something French. I have it. It's called Tsutuma. Tsutuma, exactly. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Tsutuma. Okay, the number nine on the record. We had at least five total different versions, which did not resemble at all. Total different. With saxophone and piano and with, with total different tunes even. And I gave up on this tune. We didn't come to the point where 
we said, Max and I said, this will make it onto the record. So we lost it. And then Max came a few days later. What about this version, number 15 out of 500? And he sent me this MP3 of this version, which is on the record. And I hardly could remember by first listening. And I immediately said, wow, this sounds great. What is that? After five, six, seven seconds, I realized this is the version number five of, of a very early origin of the song. And I immediately loved it, but I didn't like it then. And Max didn't like it then either. He said, no, we have to keep on doing, we have to. And then you come back months later, seeing your own work with a distant view. And then you decide, this is it. This has the potential. And what happened? We just took That's the incredible. MP3. There wasn't even a session. There wasn't even files because I rejected it. I threw it away. I don't collect the failures. I only keep the the gold. And this sometimes it's a really big mis mistake. I mean, going back to what we earlier talked about, like your narrative and, and context and yeah. what does a record need in order to be a record and, and sort of a journey, you listen to it and you feel like, okay, now with this 10 songs, we, we have the cosmos that we wanted mm -hmm. to explore and, and share with the listeners. So this song made total sense within that context in a version that we thought was like a, a, not a path we should further explore at the point we were working on it. And Lawrence, one more thing, this version, and now uh, um, I remember it is a big assembly or a collection of mistakes because the organ with the drum beat really broke down after this version, after this beat collapsed and I threw it away, the organ with the drum beat. And I remember I played two guitar solos on it. And the first one I didn't like. And the second one I didn't like either. So we had two guitars and I pushed one knob by incident, which two guitars at the same time matched together so that I liked them. I liked the version. And that's why I was so insecure and I sent it to Max and he wasn't, you know, he said in the, in the beginning. But then after the decision was made, it was good with a different perspective. I, I think it's more um, a way of deciding what is good and what is not good, which is not sometimes doesn't happen in the moment where you create, which is strange with the emotional feelings you have while you're working. So with a different approach and with a distant view and different point of view, you can decide that something was good, which wasn't good three months ago. Mm. So what's scary in that or interesting in that, because I was originally going to ask you, how do you decide when to abandon an idea as opposed to continuing to really work at it and try to find it? But what seems like maybe happens more often than not is you might abandon ideas that actually are good, but you just don't like them in the moment. It's so magical. Mm. Which is good. Uh, we've been collecting music and it's not like Roberto's. He's throwing some of the stuff away. I keep a lot of the stuff like in, in different stages. So and we've been making music for 16, 
16 years now. And it happens so often that for a certain project or a certain phase, we remember saying, we recall things that we were doing maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago, and we revisit them. And all of a sudden, something that at the point we enjoy doing it, but it never really fit like a, a project we were working on. We find that within a new context, it, it, it starts, it, it makes sense. Of course, there's a lot of music sitting there that will never be released, but we are really happy for our own, like I say, bibliotheque or so of, of music yeah, yeah. because sometimes we recall things or like I have a lot of playlists and I go through stuff that we were working on. Roberto sent me at, at some point, some morning, because he's sitting there at 7.35. By 8.15, I have uh, one or two ideas. Very often by 12 o'clock, he revisits a lot of these uh, things and did other stuff. And that's maybe one thing I could say about him. The magic is in the work that he's putting in there, like constantly. There's a lot of magic in all of the stuff he's doing, but it's always about the story you want to tell. And that's really a, a sort of a, a mindset. And that's something that, you know, that, that comes with talking on the phone or a meeting and listening to, to, to music or being inspired by some stuff. That was what this record was about. We've had the idea with the last record was re like really to align ourselves within that beautiful musical history of, of spiritual yeah. jazz and really sort of paying homage to the godfathers and, and mothers of this music and also like asking Joss Tolliver to join in or, or getting this beautiful, this beautiful poem by Yusuf Latif and, and so on. With this record, it was really like, okay, now we had opened ourselves to the world and invited the world to come in. Now we want to sort of like reverse the camera maybe and say, okay, this is where we're from, Munich. This is what's, what's from here and, and with the record was mostly done there. So just look around. This is like other influences that we grew up with within that circle of, of, of musicians. So like both of the, the Webmax albums are like this different perspectives of the same lens that is once turn into the world and then like turn turn backwards towards like where we sit and where we work mm -hmm. so that maybe that's an overall idea to it what will your role be or what is your role when the band performs live i call myself the rhythm piano player uh, there's a rose and a piano we share and then there's some electronics so but it's mostly like what we talked about i'm not a piano player but i'm Maybe also through rappers, I'm a timekeeper in a way that I can play stuff like and, and repeat it. And, and so I think it's more like the drummer and the bass player and I, we sort of work on the basses that Roberto and, and Tony Lakatos can really like go crazy on.
Roberto, you mentioned earlier that some of the songs were constructed and how some of the sections I thought were organic instruments are, are simulated instruments. How does this impact the development of the live program? I mean, are you bringing the Mellotron out or is Tony going to duplicate mm-hmm. those parts? How does that come together? This is an, would be an enormous action to, to carry all these instruments from one place. <laughs> and since you play in Switzerland and in Hamburg, actually the bands then, they did it and they were smoking, drinking, driving from Hamburg to Switzerland and they lifted. But these days, the first class eating schnitzel, going to yoga, <laughs> whatever. And then you go to soundtrack and, you know, drink still water, 39 de- degrees Celsius warm to relax. And it's different. It's yeah. so different. And, and so is the music. The music life is a total different thing for me. It has to work as a live group. We use the songs as a vehicle to express what we can do on a record. And I think, I hope that many artists do this in jazz and pop music, like Prince, you know, I mean, he plays a fucking guitar solo, which isn't on the song, you know, he always did perform and did things live. And to be honest, it's very boring if you go to a concert in, and in, it's the same shit mm. as on the record. I would fall asleep immediately, especially with this music. Also grabbing your idea with the arrangements earlier. To us, it's very important not to overload either too many arrangements in a record. It makes the good arrangement, the one good arrangement, weaker. So you decide, okay, perennial journey is the arrangement. Then you have the sound and a pre-jazz bass clarinet player called Johannes Anders on the second song, which I love his approach to music. And then you have a ballad or a fast song called The Source of All Things, which is the main groove is played by Bibul, a friend of mine from Cameroon. He plays it on trees on the floor. And she plays this groove so hard and, and so great. So every tune has a different focus on the record. And then comes the ballad, which almost sounds like a cineastic, like the intro to a 70s Polanski movie with Faye Dunaway and yeah. Peter Ponda. I don't know if they played ever played together. But, you know, <laughs> and then the sixth dimension is a weird, free, black star type of darkness which has to come out you know and then you have this so the focus is always different on each of the songs which is what i love to hear on a record would be this we're not going to play all the songs of the record i think like there's some songs that are really like perennial journey which is really like a composition you can play it it doesn't really matter if you have the strings playing or not so we can really uh, do it well. Then there's songs that are more like of a vibe and then we decide where do we play. But the catalog now from WebWeb, all the records and the WebMax, the first one, this uh, is tremendous now. Yeah, There's a lot to pick from. So I think with the tour we're playing now, we're going to play, let's say, four or five songs from the record where we think that we can play it with a quintet and it, it makes sense and we can bring a new story alive. And then with the other ones, we don't we don't know if we have to 
doing. We'd rather pick songs from from the WebMax record before. Mm-hmm. Are the shows entirely the WebWeb or WebMax music, or do standards ever creep their way in, or you just it's your own music? No, it's only our own music and the web music of WebWeb. Sometimes we used to play like a composition by the bass player, Christian von Kaphengst. I think Tony Lakatosh also had a song that we, you know, mm-hmm. the, the US player, I think I never played it with you. But it's original music by the group. It's fun. And then also with these guys, sometimes you have a set of one and a half hours and you decide to play more like you want to show a lot of the composition. So you say, let's play 12 or 14 songs a day. And then there's other days where we say, okay, let's be more free about it. And then they, they, we play a song and it's 15 minutes on the same theme, but the band has taken it somewhere. For also for me, I love being part of this and I learn every night. I learn so much and it's, I get braver <laughs> being <laughs> with them. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It is with the utmost gratitude and thankfulness that we pay homage to the mystical language of music and to those who have paved the way on this perennial journey of love and universal connection. Sincerity and heartfelt expression are the source of all things, unlocking life's many meanings through testimony and meditation. And to our fellow travelers who have shared their spirit in service of this collective moment, we welcome you. We are all disciples of those who laid the foundation, worshipers of rhythm movements, colors, and tones, students who look beyond the sun, open the doors of the cosmos, utopia, and visions. We bear witness to the eternal light of your body of work as we offer a humble contribution to your legacy. Something that, that Roberto said earlier, you use the live shows to do things that you can't necessarily do on record. It's so interesting because it's an inversion of what you hear a lot of other artists say, right? Like they, they do things on record that they can't do live because they have the tools and the technology mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the studio. That's just such an interesting notion. And, and I think it is true, you know, like Prince was a pop artist. He wasn't going to have a seven minute guitar solo on his studio take because he wanted to be on the radio and he had very specific pop goals. But then you go see him live and he had very specific artistic goals. And the way he navigated the two of them, it's just fascinating that I've never quite heard it said that way. So many artists view the record as so precious and that's the, that's the expression of the song, whereas they almost have to apologize for live. Yeah. 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 All the different stories. One is the album, which you want to listen and which shouldn't be too long. I don't know. But on live, you have to give the people different things, different emotions. Actually, very simple. I think we need a WebMax live album. I, I, I think just for Yeah, we'd love to do it. <laughs> we'd love to do it. We had, um, there's several recordings now. I think the Leverkusen Jazz Target was a pretty good recording. We did, and, there, and there's two setups. I don't know if Roberto mentioned, but we played with orchestras too. We have a, yeah. um, a friend, Magnus Lindgren, who wrote arrangements to the songs. And we performed it with different orchestras in Berlin with the Babersberg Film Orchestra and in Stuttgart with the Opera Orchestra, which is quite a good, good orchestra. It's a bit like when you're talking about Mekka it's a bit like some of the stuff he explored where it gets yeah. really 
you know, all the um, strings and everything. Yeah, orchestral. And I love doing it. It's formatted in a way that, of course, there's parts where this is solos now and and they wait for us until they come back in. But it's, it's more of what we'd say, what you could compare to, okay, now we're going to play what was on the record. Now we're going to play what is written in comparison to when we play as a quintet where it's like totally free. And of course, there's some things that repeat because we feel, okay, this worked on one occasion, one night. So maybe we should do it again. It was fun doing it that way. But this is something that always comes with the shows, the concerts. And like when you play some shows in a row, then there's certain things that grow through just doing it and, and feeling good about it. But also, if you can improvise, what we can improvise. And why shouldn't we use this tool? You know, it's like in a conversation or telling a joke, you know, this phenomenon, you're telling a joke, it's funny. And then a second person comes in, want to, wants to hear the same joke and you, you tell it different and it gets boring. And this, and this third person comes in and you say, this is not funny at all. And it's like music. I mean, I get bored easily by playing always the same licks. And I know I played this which worked great last night. And I don't want to make the mistake of getting a trap and, and copy myself. It's like telling the joke the second time. It has to be spontaneous. That's my natural way of regarding our music as being interesting. If it's not interesting for ourselves, it can't be interesting for the audience. I think that might be a good place to, to end our time together. I know we're coming to the end of our hour. I'm just so excited to have the album come out and for the world to hear it because it's very exciting and satisfying music. And I thank you both for making time today and for making this beautiful album. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Lawrence, bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Roberto De Gioia and Max Herr. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, the Bonus Tracks blog, our online store, our mailing list, and to make a donation to support our production, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.